0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unplugged by Good Bets, where we provide the latest tips, strategies, and straightforward advice to underdog entrepreneurs and anyone who wants to leave a legacy by launching and growing a thriving social enterprise. I'm Nicole Jarbo from the Good Bets Group, and I'll be your host as we dive into the world of successful social entrepreneurship. Our episodes will be a hodgepodge. Some days we'll answer your most urgent startup questions, and others we will interview founders you should know but we'll always provide practical and unfiltered advice to help you build a better venture faster. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today on this episode of Unplugged. And I'm very, very pleased to welcome a good friend and client and inspiration and all the good things in the world, uh, Kimberly Diaz, who is a co-founder and CEO of OneTilt. Hey, Kimberly, how are you?
1: Hey, Nicole, I'm great. Thanks for that intro.
0: Yeah, that was super unplanned. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it, made me, it made me feel good though. So I'm good, good for it.
0: All right. <laughs> now this is over. But before we get started, can you let people know who you are and what you do?
1: Absolutely. And I really appreciate you asking the question because in most circles, I'll start off with my name Kimberly Diaz and I'm the CEO and co founder of One Tilt. But I feel like with you, I can keep it real. Um, so when I think about who I am, a lot of identities come to my mind. Um, every day, as a woman, multiracial, Latinx entrepreneur, I'm reminded of who I am and where I come from. And so I'm from the great state of, the New, of New Jersey. My father is a refugee from Cuba. My mom is a white American who grew up in a working class uh, family. Still, I think would identify as working class. Um, and so I've always seen my family really hustle, which is why I think I ended up becoming an entrepreneur, even though, you know, if you Google entrepreneur, no one really looks like me, and it's not the typical story. Um, but I think that my background and my past is actually an asset in that. Um, and as you said, I'm the CEO and co-founder of One Tilt. So One Tilt stands for one tiny, inclusive, little thing. And we're really trying to reimagine how we think of about diversity, equity, inclusion, and leadership. To be honest, I feel like it's turned into buzzwords that don't really mean anything. Um, or maybe it's a word on your website, and we want to actually change mindsets at Wendtilt. And we do that in a whole bunch of ways that I'm happy to talk about, but um, largely through working with different organizations in you know long-term learning series. And we also have a pretty dope, dope fellowship in BC for educators.
0: Awesome. Thank you. I feel like there's so many directions I can take this. So I'm going to try to temper myself. Um, But I actually want to start just going way back. You talked a little bit about your parents. Um, You know that I am a daughter of immigrants and I don't think either of them actually knows what I do for work (laughs) as an entrepreneur. And so I'm curious with your dad being a refugee from Cuba and your mom coming from a working class background how how does entrepreneurship sort of fit into their expectations of, of work you did? I mean, maybe they didn't have expectations of you, but I'd love to hear a little bit about how you think about that, um, Having having parents who maybe had some instability in their backgrounds in different ways.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think as a mixed-race person, right, with one parent, who came here from another country, and then one parent who was born here, one parent who's a person of color, one parent who's white, this this question's really complicated for me. And so uh, I think my dad thinks this is a hobby. (laughs) You know, I don't really talk about, Mm -hmm. um, you know, my startup. When I first got into the education sector, it was 2009, uh, so there was a, a slight financial crisis, I guess you could say, at that time. And I had two offers. I could go and, and use my economics degree and be a financial analyst, or I could join Teach for America in D.C. and teach middle school math. And he had a very clear opinion, right? I think if I was to be an economist, that's something that as an immigrant you can get your head behind. Whereas being a teacher uh, just has a different connotation. Like I went to school, I got this degree to be a teacher, and don't get me wrong, my father supported me 100%, but it definitely wasn't the path I don't think he saw me on. Uh, now, with my mom, she's so proud of me being an entrepreneur. She likes all one post. Posts. She shares it on social media. But as a white person, I think it can be challenging for her to brag as much as she would if I sold handbags. Because the work I do is about racial equity and justice, and we're not shy about that at once, tilt. So, I mean, if you go to our Facebook feed today, we just read an article, we shared an article about white supremacy, and so it's interesting for her identity, I think, as a white woman to grapple with both her prep pride of me, in that I am a successful entrepreneur, and also like the content of what my startup's about.
0: Mm. Ooh, so much to ask you okay I gotta I gotta keep this surface level for a second um, I know
1: I also am like how much of my family shit do I want on right I'm podcast? like
0: let's dig deep <laughs> let's dig deep no um okay so, so I actually want to talk a little bit about being mixed and I think you did a really great job of illustrating in terms of like your work life um that potential difference in terms of how your parents might see things. And I don't actually think this is necessarily about race, but I'm really curious with the work of One Tilt. Like, how has your identity um, encouraged you to start a project like this? Like, what are you trying to actually accomplish with this work and how does it connect to who you are?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great question because my identity of being a mixed or multiracial person is so intertwined with why I started One Tilt and what we're about. So at till, our vision is that the future is inclusive, because it has to be. We know that the working force is becoming more and more diverse. Uh, we know also that mixed race people as a population are growing. Um, and we have to prepare leaders and managers to have these kinds of conversations and to be able to lead in an equitable way. And that's just not the case. The workplace has a racism and a sexism problem, period. You can add any other identity into it. It's ableist. It's transphobic. And we believe at one tilt, if we can get this out on the table, we can really make a change. And I decided to start an organization with a explicit mission to, because first and foremost of my own experiences growing up as a mixed race, Kid in schools in northern New Jersey. If you're familiar with New Jersey, uh, you'll know it's a really diverse place. Since so I went to school with people of all different races, all different gender, sexual orientations, different ability levels, yet I never had a Latinx teacher. I never had a mixed race teacher. Mm. I was constantly told I wasn't Latin enough, but I wasn't Hispanic enough. Uh, however, That didn't stop my schools from not putting me in gifted and talented programs because of my last name. I had an experience that was really challenging as I was navigating this challenging identity of being mixed, and I needed a teacher or a leader who saw me and understood me and didn't try to whitewash me and didn't try to put me into one box or the other, but said, hey, Kimberly, I see you, and this identity will actually be an asset, and I never had that. So that experience really wanted me to do something different. And then when I was in the workplace, so I started my career off as an educator. I then worked for a national nonprofit coaching and developing teachers and leaders for six years. I saw how my identity as a mixed race person was actually an asset, right? Because it's for me, being mixed with, with a white parent and a person of color as a parent I'm able to navigate both worlds in a really interesting way. And that's not to say I fully understand the identity of being a person of color or just, or being a white person, because I have that duality. There are tidbits that I can speak to. And I think that's really needed in conversations around diversity and equity and inclusion today. I feel like it's very polarizing. We get into what I like to call woke force, right? On Twitter, I was like, who can mm-hmm. say the most woke thing? We end up going into sessions where people of color, specifically black and indigenous people, feel like they're not challenged. White people feel like they can't say anything without being wrong. And then Latinx, <laughs> multiracial folks like myself uh, sometimes feel in the middle. And I can actually leverage my identity as a mixed person to create more rigorous spaces for us to have these dialogues and to push towards action. And so my identity as being mixed is absolutely integral to why I started my organization. That doesn't mean it's not hard because I think my identity is still questioned about can a mixed person do this work, much less lead this work, much less found this work. Um, and my answer would be absolutely, but I still get questions about it from funders. I still get left off of lists when we talk about people of color leaders and I'm okay with that.
0: Mm, thank you. I mean, there's, there's a ton to unpack there in terms of how we perceive people doing entrepreneurship, how we perceive people outside of entrepreneurship, teachers, you know, um, business, all of that stuff. Uh, so I really appreciate you sharing that. And I want to actually dig into one OneTilt, um, mm-hmm. continuing in this vein. What is it that you all actually do? I think a lot of people feel <laughs> like DEI everywhere. Or they probably don't even know what that is, but they've heard equity and they're hearing diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. I feel like every single day I'm getting an email from LinkedIn about some chief diversity and inclusion role that I'm 100% not qualified for. But I'm seeing those things and being mm-hmm. in the Bay Area, I'm seeing um, honestly not culture change, but an awareness of diversity and inclusion that wasn't there before. And so where does OneTilt fit in this like massive ecosystem uh, of work around equity and racial justice?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. I feel like diversity, equity, and inclusion has become a buzzword. I mean, you can't be a startup in the Silicon Valley without having a plan for diversity, equity, and inclusion right. written into your plan, right? uh you, if you Google any school website that you might want to work for, I assure you they likely have a diversity core value. And what that means, generally, is it's words on a page. And I think that, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's it. It's words. It's words, right? Because in my, my, my theory on this largely comes from the election of our new president and uh, raising up a lot of the really problematic and hurtful and evil dialogue that we've heard is that a lot of moderate white folks and people in power are like, okay, that's not good. <laughs> so we're going to say what we value diversity. And to be honest, that's, that's not doing anything. It's putting a band-aid on a problem. And quite frankly, if you found yourself in diversity, equity, inclusion sessions before, like I did, you probably are feeling one of two ways. If you identify as a person of color and we're talking about racial equity, you don't feel challenged. It feels like 101. It feels like we're speaking to the lowest denominator in the room. And if you identify as white, you might feel either not challenged because you've also been doing your own identity work or you feel like you can't say anything because you don't want to say anything wrong. And overall, regardless of how you identify, you probably feel like it's a waste of time and nothing changes. And that's exactly the experience that I had at my nonprofit job before and that lots of leaders have had. And that's what we're trying to do differently at One Tilt. And so at One Tilt, we believe that diversity, equity, and inclusion work should be challenging, but it can also be fun and it should cause you to change your actions tomorrow. And that's really the story behind our name. One Tilt stands for one tiny, inclusive, little thing. We believe, Nicole, that if you come to a session and you do something just a little bit differently and I do something and your colleague does something and your manager and your direct report, it'll create a snowball. Um, and a snowball that's moving towards equity and gets bigger and bigger as we all take our one tilt. Yeah. So that's a little bit about who we are. In terms of what we do, we want to break this dichotomy that you either do D E I work and DI learning and then professional development on your your skills, whether that's manager skills, leadership skills, or even teaching pedagogy. We are humans and we bring our identities to everything we do, so our training needs to also bring our identities to everything we do. It just so happens that myself and my co-founder's expertise was in management and leadership, and so that's what we zoom in on. We focus in on the connection between diversity, equity, and inclusion, and leadership and management.
0: All right, so I want to stop you and zoom in on one tilt, like this idea of doing a tiny, inclusive little thing, right? So Mm -hmm. what are are some examples that everyday people can do who say that they're committed to equity and inclusion? What are a few small things that you've seen in your work that can really make a big difference?
1: Absolutely. I'll start off with an example that... I just heard from one of our Tilt Forward fellows. So we have a fellowship program in D.C. that has about 15 leaders, half identify people of color, half identify as white, and they're working together in a year-long program to create new solutions for their schools to better live into their value of equity and inclusion. And one of our fellows said, you know what? I have to learn. I need time to do it. And I live and die by my calendar. So once a week, not every day, once a week, I'm going to put a 30-minute time clock, and I'm going to go and read and educate myself on ability, on sexual orientation, on anti-Blackness, whatever topics that I just don't have as much lived experience on. That's a one pill, right? Because you're understanding, okay, as a leader, I need to educate myself. I also know my preferences. I live and die by my calendar, so I'm going to give myself 30 minutes. Like, I know I was a math teacher. I don't know the percentage. What is that, like one fifty of your time in an average work week? It's possible. It's doable. Um, So that can be a one-tilt. But one-tilt can be larger as well. And so we are working with a school system based in D.C. My co-founder and I both got our start in the education sector. So we do work with a lot of education clients. And they were going through a series of change management. And... The leader was frustrated because she felt like she couldn't have real dialogue with her team members. And so we dove into some agreements that come from Glenn Singleton and Curtis Linton's courageous conversations about race. I am not getting paid for that plug, but highly recommend you buy it from your local bookstore. And they have four agreements that help us have productive conversations around race. And if we can have them around race, we can have them around change management. We can do anything. They're very applicable. And so she went and took those agreements and added them to every single team meeting agenda. And they started to have productive conversations. You know, that's a one tilt. Two, I think about, we work with an ed tech giant, and they provide a curriculum for students that come from under-resourced communities. And I was working with one of the marketing leads, right? They design logos. How can I think about diversity, equity, inclusion in the process of designing collateral? And one of their one tilts was, I get feedback from the same people all the time and they tend to be men and they tend to look like me. So maybe next time before I put this logo out there or shoot out this one pager, I'm going to actually ask a diversity of people to give me feedback. That's the one tilt. They can be big or small. It doesn't matter your industry. But their commitment to taking what you learn in a session, taking the ideas we talked about and doing something with it. Like I'm done with complacency. We as a country need to be done with complacency, which is why we want to sit in the learning that needs to happen and not rush it. We're not going to undo 500 years of systemic oppression in a 90 minute session. So I want to honor that and not make light of the work we have to do and not let us off the hook. Both mm-hmm. of those
0: things I think can be true. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm like, talk all day about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanna ask one more question and, and then sort of yeah. pivot to hear more about your journey leading the work. Sure. Um if I was to walk into an organization uh and I'm an employee, how would I know that that organization was moving towards um, A more equitable, creating a more equitable culture and environment for people like me. Like, what should I be looking for?
1: It should actually start before you walk in. It starts in the interview mm.
0: process. Mm-hmm.
1: You know what I'm saying? I always tell people who ask me this question, go to their website. A, what does their board look like? Who's the board of directors? What identities do you see? What do you not see? That's going to tell you something about the organization's commitment. Now, because of the barriers we've had in this country, most boards will be predominantly white, will be predominantly male, and that does shift a little bit based in industry. But if you look at any of the major tech firms, any of the major companies who have come out to say, we want to diversify, you better believe they've added more diverse people to the board in the last couple of years. So take a look at their board. Second, ask your interviewer. I think as people who care about equity work, and, you know, Nicole, I can't answer your question without thinking about your identity as a person of color, we sometimes forget that we're interviewing the organization as much as they're interviewing us. Mm
0: -hmm. And we are
1: valuable. We are valuable. People like us who understand the importance of diversity, equity, inclusion, and want to lead in this way, this is the forefront of skills that employers are telling you they're looking for. So ask them in your interview process as well hey, tell me a little bit more on diversity, you know, what's your organization looking to do? Those can be some strong questions. Stronger questions can be, tell me about what diversity training you've done in the last year at your organization, you specifically interviewer. How do you think about diversity, equity, inclusion in your day-to-day? Not just on, not just in your diversity statement, tell me how it shows up in your day-to-day. And if they have an answer, even if they fumble, that's a good sign that my organization is moving towards that. It doesn't have to be perfect. We know perfectionism is a component of white supremacist culture. People can be working through it. That, to me, sends the message, this might be an organization I want to work for. If they struggle to answer or say, yeah, I know it really matters to the company. We haven't really figured it out yet. That might be a warning sign for you. Now, if you're a person like me that likes to go into organizations and create spaces and you're happy to take on that emotional labor, then that still might be a good fit for you. Um, But if you're not, or to be quite frankly, to be quite frank, if you're just tired, then maybe you want to move and and consider a different organization um, before you continue with that process.
0: Mm. And what I heard in that, too, there's so many ways that organizations can try to be more equitable. You know, if they feel like they can't hire someone, I don't know, diversify your board. Make sure like all people get to make decisions. That was really helpful. Thank you. Um, All right. I want to talk about what it's like to build something. So I think that the folks listening, they kind of want to know how you got from zero to one. How did that start? How did you think about the work? What were you trying, not trying? Who helped you? What'd you learn? Obviously you don't have to answer all of those things, but I'd love to hear about what it was like to bring something like this to life.
1: Yeah, because to be honest, I never in a million years thought I'd call myself an entrepreneur, never. And I am a confident woman. I know I'm intelligent. I know I have the skills. But I've been so ingrained by U.S. culture and media and society telling me that entrepreneurs are people like Mark Zuckerberg, are people like Bill Gates, and not people like Kimberly Diaz. And so the whole idea of becoming an entrepreneur was really foreign. And it wasn't until I got the validation of others to say, no, actually, you've got something. Actually, this is a good idea. There is a gap in the market here that I started to take that plunge. You know, I wish I could tell you, Nicole, that I was like, I found a problem, and then I went and solved it. But the truth is, I needed a lot of validation. I still need validation. I'm working on being more confident uh, in my role as an entrepreneur on my own, but I needed that at first. And so I had this idea that if we taught leaders how to be more inclusive, we could stop really valuable, diverse talent from leading organizations. That was the idea I had. Um, but I also come from humble beginnings, right? My mom and my stepfather from a working class background. My father's an immigrant. So I could have just quit my job and start something. I needed security. I needed an income. I mean, when I was working at my nonprofit, I was making more than both of my parents ever made combined. So I wasn't going to quit my job. I laugh when I like see that advertisement on LinkedIn of the founder of Spinx who, you know, took a leap with her $5,000 in savings. That's privilege when you, mm-hmm. come, when you don't come from that background. And so for me, I had this idea. People were saying it was a good one, but I wanted to figure out a way to test it while I still had my full-time job. And many people listening who might share some of those identities, whether you're from a working-class background or your parents are immigrants, we know the side hustle. Our parents have been doing it their whole lives, <laughs> right, hustling. Uh, and so that's what I was going to do. And so I started off uh, designing a session with my co-founder. It was called Be a Better Boss. And it was all about how you could give feedback in a way that centered your identity. So What I mean by that is, Nicole, say I'm giving you feedback and I'm your manager. There's a power dynamic there for sure. Mm-hmm. There's also the dynamic of we are both women. I am a light-skinned, multiracial, mixed person. You are not. <laughs> and so we have to be able to talk about that. We have to be able to say, Nicole's experience as a brown woman is different than Kimberly's experience as somebody who can pass. And what does that mean when it's also power dynamics and giving feedback? That was the whole idea of the session. And so my organization at the time did a conference. And so I said, this is low stakes. I'm gonna go to it anyway. Why don't I just ask if I can do the session? And 15 people signed up. Not the most popular session by any means, but that experience taught me so much because those people became my first advocates. They were like, "This was really helpful and mind blowing." And here's what I would do differently. They gave me really great feedback, and I got a little bit of validation that helped me continue to work on it and work on my and work on my idea. I also had help of. uh, 4.0 4.0 schools, which is an incubator based out of New Orleans and countless other mentors who me throughout this process. But it really started with, I have an idea. I don't want to put my job. How can I do both? And it grew from there.
0: Nice. So we haven't actually talked a lot about some of the successes that OneTilts had. Um, yeah. And for everyone listening, I am quite familiar with many of them, but <laughs> Kimberly, I'm going to let you choose a couple that you want to share because we haven't gone here. And I think people are like, Oh, Kimberly's talking. Cool. She seems like she has some stuff together, but like, what is this place really doing? So will you talk to us a little bit about some successes that you all have had?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And when I think about the successes of my organization, the first thing that comes to my mind is the mindset we've shifted. And the organizations whose policies are different as a result of our training and of our, and of our work together. That's mm-hmm. the work that I'm really passionate about. Right. And so another thing that we have learned from white supremacy is that more is better. We have to have impact at scale to be worth anything. Right. Think about how venture capital works. I need to take something small and I need to scale it. That's what success is. And we've had successes like that, but we've also had small successes and To me, they are equally valuable, right? So I think about a Facebook message I just got from a white leader who was in one of my early cohorts of our learnings that said, hey, I still use that worksheet on white supremacy with my colleagues and my coworkers, but I feel like I'm getting stuck with my identity development myself as a white leader. Here's what I've done. Here's what I'm thinking about. Can you give me any advice? That is a huge mindset shift coming from a leader who wouldn't at first say that they were white, right? That is a huge success when I think about what that would mean for the people of color that he manages for him to be able to model his leadership and his ownership as a white person. That to me is an incredible success. I also think about the work we do with larger organizations. And so we do what's called an equity audit where we take a look at an organization, all of their systems, we talk to people, we give a survey, and come up with concrete recommendations that they can take and implement to make their organization more inclusive. And so I think about an HR manager who said, you know, we really thought about all your recommendations, and we decided to start by training every single one of our hiring managers in anti-bias training, and not the 15-minute webinar we used to do. We actually invested in an outside consultant and we're doing this anti-bias training. That shifts an entire organization. That will open the doors for hundreds of people who look like us, who come from backgrounds like us to have a fair shot. That to me is a huge success. But equally valuable is also the financial stability I built in my organization. And I want to talk about this because we don't talk about money, period. I think my experience has been as a woman coming from the background I came from, my family definitely didn't talk about money. And as entrepreneurs, I find that we're often guarded about money. And so when I started One Tilt, I was in, when I started One Tilt and we were really seeing success, I decided to go to business school because I wanted to learn a language that's not meant for us and to create an organization that's sustainable. And so I am really proud that in year two, I have four full-time employees and eight contractors. Everybody gets paid. Everybody gets benefits. Everybody has a limited vacation. And this year, everyone's going to have access to a financial planner in our second year as an organization. That makes me proud. I am proud that we also have a financial model that allows us to create a reserve. So if I were not to make another penny all year, all my people would be taken care of. I'm really proud of that. And That is something I'd like to hear more dialogue on because you can't value DEI and not pay for DEI. And if you are a DEI provider, how are you thinking about structuring your organization so that you can get the clients who can pay and then still do the work with the folks that you might really want to work with but don't have the ability to? And so whether it's a single person, an organization, or a finances, I'm really proud at how how we've been able to accomplish
0: so much in a short period of time. Yes, Kimberly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I want to talk about, I, I have to pivot. <laughs> Even yeah. though I want to stick on this because I think you're absolutely right. Right. Like you have to invest in the things that you care about. It is like one small way to show that you actually care about making a change and actually care about transformation. So shout out to all of y'all's clients who put their money where their mouth is. And yes, also shout out. We to you, love you, Andrew. come back. <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, and for everyone out there, Andrew is Kimberly's co-founder who's not on the call, but you and Andrew have done some really incredible stuff in terms of espousing those values that you try to impart and share with your clients in your actual own organization and infusing those. So congratulations. I think that's one of the hardest things to do as a leader and manager, to actually show up internally the way that you want to show up externally. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, go ahead.
1: I was just gonna say, it matters in the big structural thing. Like we bank with the only black owned bank in D.C only minority-owned bank in DC. That's a structural way we set up our organization to Mm -hmm. reflect our values of supporting people of color. I get that if you're at a national organization who's had a banking partner for 200 years, that's gonna be a harder shift, right? And so in that case, it might be really trying to assess your values as an individual, and that's something Andrew and I try to do as well. We just had a strategic planning meeting, and we both realized, wow, Unintentionally, we have been not as clear with our new direct reports that we've hired, and that is not leading them to feel successful. And so in our strategic planning meeting, we brought out the components of white supremacist culture, and we said, let's make sure that we're keeping this top of mind so that we're not perpetuating something that we're trying to dismantle. And so I just want to say you're dead on that it's hard to do. Even as DEI practitioners building my organization, I still do stuff that's not equitable but if we can create a process to continue to go over it i think we can make that change eventually
0: well i think naming that and trying is the beginning uh-huh. i even think about the consulting wor- world right um for for everybody who's not in ed there are like a million independent consultants and firms and lots of choices for support And uh, I hear a lot of people talk about equity, talk about inclusion. They run programs for leaders of color or people who come from other sort of underrepresented backgrounds. Uh, But everybody on their board is white, went to the same (laughs) schools, Ivy League schools. Every consultant they hire went to those schools too. Uh Um, Uh Looks like them. And then they say they're about this work. And I think that we can set the bar. Um, you know, organizationally really high on how we run and structure organization to your point to reflect what we actually care about. And I would even add that to, to what you let me know about how to sort of evaluate an organization that you might want to be a part of. Who they hire really matters. Absolutely. Because we all know consultants, depending on what their work is, they they can actually influence the organization pretty heavily in fact they're there to do that so if those folks are not for the people you say you want to serve then are you for the people you say you want to serve Mm -hmm. um (laughs) i wish you were in person and had wine but that was like my mic (laughs) (laughs) but it actually reminds me of i just watched this interview with um brian stevenson and he said and i'm gonna butcher it because he's brian stevenson and no one can do what he does but he uh, he said, how can you advocate or help people that you really don't understand? And I think in ed and in social impact more broadly, I think we have to keep having that conversation, right? And that's not to say that you need to go hire a bunch of consultants of color. Um, you want folks who care about the same things you do and have the same values that you do. Um, yeah, so I have a lot to say about that, but this isn't about me. I'm just feeling that right now because I do think your point about building an organization that does the work that you do and making sure it's reflected in everything your organization touches, including your employees and your team is, is super critical. And I think that's a bar uh, that's high that we actually have to push other organizations to want to sort of take on that work. So thank you. Yes.
1: yes. And as leaders... It's almost counterintuitive because to be an entrepreneur, you have to be confident. You have to stand up there, pitch meeting after pitch meeting, talking to funder after funder saying, here's my idea and here's why it's great. Here's why I'm different than my competition and here's why you should invest in, right? Um, now, OneTill is a not-for-profit, so I have a lot of those conversations with uh, foundations. And so you have to put out this idea that you know everything. But the truth is, we are all learning so much. And so to be humble, to sit down in front of your employees and say, hey, I don't know, and I'm not going to rely on you to teach me. Here's what I'm going to go and do. That can be tough because it's the direct opposite of what we have to do as CEOs and founders and leaders all day long. And so I want to honor that and name it. And to Brian Stevenson's point, hey, you can't do it. You can't advocate for those people if you don't understand them. And so you have to be able to put that time in and being humble and just admitting when you don't know, it goes a long way.
0: Yeah, and I would, you know, one of the things I love about the work that you and Andrew do and your, your team, um, you're showing people that they can and should actually lead differently. Yes. And I think that is a conversation that needs to continue, you know, in every industry. Like, what is leadership? What should we actually expect from leaders? I feel like living in the Bay Area every single day, I'm learning about some CEO that got ousted for being like an asshole. <laughs> and it's like we we just think it's normal or something.
1: Mm-hmm. We almost become numb to
0: it. Exactly. Like if you want to build something big that impacts people, you just have to be a jerk, apparently. um And so that's one of the things I've always appreciated about y'all's work. You can be confident, you can lead an organization, but be humble and be collaborative, right? And really set the tone for um, a more equitable culture. And in fact. Believe that one of your primary roles is to do that. Um, right. Okay, I have two more questions for you because I Go know we're on time. Um, we talked about all these like wonderful successes. And that was great, but I want to talk about from the founding standpoint. What have been some challenges that you've encountered?
1: This is an easy question for me to answer because it's access to capital. Period. End of sentence. I don't know how many studies we need to show that women are funded less and that people of color are funded less and that then the intersection of being a woman of color is funded at even lower rates. And in our society, in a capitalist society, having a financial runway to be able to dream and build is critical. That's why Banks is successful because she had $5,000. When I started off, I had zero dollars. Right, like maybe I, was, I think I was trying to put fifty dollars a month in my bank account. That's what I, that's what I had when I started. And so, we need. That, that was one of my biggest challenges as an entrepreneur: was how am I going to get the financial resources to start something? How am I going to get the financial resources that will allow me to then take a leap of faith and pay myself and pay my co-founder? It's a huge challenge, especially when you don't come from money. Navigating right. those conversations is tough. I'll never forget, Nicole, I was blessed enough to receive uh, a grant from an organization and they brought a whole other, they brought a whole group of funders together. They were all white women. And I could not move from my seat at the table to go and talk a conversation with any of them. Because I was paralyzed by the idea of saying the wrong thing. It took me back to that first dinner I went to as a scholarship student at the University of Virginia and not knowing what forks to use, right? Because it didn't come from a family that went out to dinners when you have four forks and three spoons. And so that mental block is real. And so as funders or people with wealth who are listening, when you see a woman of color who has the nerve to stand up there and pitch, give her real feedback, check yourself, and also give her some money, right? That's what we need to be able to get things off the ground so that we can mm-hmm. take the risks to be successful. And I know it's taboo, uh, but that was my biggest challenge, my biggest hurdle.
0: But you all have been able to to manage to get a little bit of funding to get going. You, you all are sustainable right now. And um, tell us what that first, I guess, big check was like, like getting that money in.
1: I actually have it on video.
0: <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I, got a
1: text, I, got a text, I got a text from my co-founder that was like, call me immediately. And I knew we were going to find out if we were going to get funding. Uh, and I think I fell to the ground when I heard. <laughs> um, this was before I broke my leg. So it was, it was an okay fall. Uh, but I, I fell to the ground and I, I cried because it was validation again. That someone said, look, Kimberly and Andrew, you might be young, you might have an idea that we don't fully understand, but it's good enough that I'm going to put dollars behind you. And that meant the world. And that really gave us uh, the courage to keep going. And it allowed us to work for people like you, Nicole, who have been thought partners on what can we do moving forward so that we're not as dependent on if some wealthy folks or people who work for wealthy folks are going to write us a check. How can we create our own revenue streams and our own our own income as one's tilt? Because yes, as a nonprofit, you can charge for your services and you should. And that has really allowed us to be where we are today. Uh, but it was an amazing feeling because it was, it was validating that we were onto something.
0: Woo woo. Hear that kids. You can do that too. <laughs> so, all right. So this is my second to last question. Um, I want to know what advice you have for folks who are trying to build something of their own or have a dream, they're not sure they should pursue it. What advice would you have for them that you'd want them to hold close?
1: That if you have an idea, it's worth testing. And I say test very specifically. You do not have to quit your job to start something. If you're passionate about it, Go and talk about it. Talk about it with three people this week. They're not going to steal your idea. They're not going to steal your IP, your intellectual property. Go and talk about it. See what people, how they react to your idea. See what questions they ask you and go back to the drawing board. As you get a little more clear, then test it. You know, for me, that was a service. It was doing that workshop while I was still getting paid. For you, it might be, maybe you're thinking about a product and it's a prototype. Actually, you know, put out a prototype. Do it. Try it and figure out what uh, your what I, what I call affordable loss. Affordable loss is a principle of entrepreneurship that I learned um, in business school um, in the field of effectual entrepreneurship. And it basically means what are you willing to lose to test it? And so think about what you're willing to lose. Is it a couple hours of your week that you would have spent watching The Real Housewives like I would? <laughs> Is it a dollar amount? Like, are you willing to actually lose some dollars? Um, and think about what that might be. And then take those steps to test, talk to people, and to try to get it out there. Because fear and the idea that your idea or product or service has to be perfect, when I talk to younger entrepreneurs, that's something they really struggle with. And that's a lie. Our first session looks nothing like what it is now. But I'm so glad I went out there and I just tried
0: it that That's beautiful. I really needed to hear that right now, too. So thank you. All right. So, last question Where can we find out more about you? One Tilt. Give us all your handles.
1: Yes. Check out onetilt.org, O N E T I L T.org. You can sign up for our newsletter there. And in 2020, we're trying to do newsletters a little different. Each one will come with a management or leadership tip that you can take to be more inclusive. So, check us out there. Sign up for our newsletter. You can also find us on social, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, everything but like TikTok, I guess. Um, And we're under the same name, one tilt O-N-E-T-I-L-T.
0: Awesome. And we'll put all of those things in the show notes, including the book that you mentioned. Um, You guys should actually do a TikTok. You and Andrew, we get like a million (laughs) followers in like two weeks.
1: Yeah, we have a new idea. Speaking of putting your ideas out there, we have a new idea that Andrew might start called White People Wednesdays, where he gives one tip to fellow white folks on how to be better white people in leadership on Wednesdays. So maybe we'll choose TikTok as a platform for that.
0: Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's
0: going to be amazing. <laughs> Get ready um, for it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking time out of your super, super Ew. busy life to to talk to us. It's really appreciated. And for everyone out there, please check out One Tilt. Their work is really amazing and it's revolutionary and it's actionable. And you can do these things and fight for a more equitable world, you know, today, not tomorrow. So do it.
1: That's a better sign off than I could ever give.
0: Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have a question you'd like us to answer or an idea for a show? Email us at hello at goodbets.co with unplugged in the subject line. If you want to learn more about GoodBets Group and our work, then visit us at goodbets.co. That's G-O-O-D-B-E-T-S dot C-O. Till next time.